This afternoon we'll return to the Madhyamaka approach, to the close application of mindfulness to the mind. Just a couple of verses here in the Bodhicharvatara. So we'll go there, and then I have a little special, I think, treat for you. Following that, It's not food, so don't get excited. <laughs> so verse 10. <laughs> she, she was just starting to lick her chops. Mm. <laughs> Hola, so verse 104. Chapter 9, Bodhicharvatara. So this is the investigating this ontological probe into the very nature of the mind. He says, if cognition, now cognition here is just flat out awareness, the awareness, they bring presence with something. If cognition is prior to the object of cognition, so whatever that may be, but for example, visual perception. So I'm aware of Daniel's shirt. So if my awareness of Daniel's shirt, if, that's, if that awareness of Daniel's shirt actually precedes the shirt, or you know, sure the, the shirt's arising moment by moment, so everything being in a state of flux. If the awareness actually precedes that which is aware of, it would be kind of a clairvoyance, kind of weird, wouldn't it? So he's suggesting, so he's going to write that one up quickly. If cognition is prior to the object of cognition, which means you're already having clair- precognition at all times, independence on what does it arise. It's kind of, I think it's transparent, that that doesn't work. But he's going to go through a process of elimination here. So that doesn't make any sense, that first you're aware, and then there's awareness of your, and, and then your object comes afterwards. That would be a very strange universe. If cognition is simultaneous with the, with the object of cognition, so your awareness and the object of awareness, if they're occurring exactly in the same moment, perfectly simultaneous, independence on what does it arise, and that is how, there could, be, how could there be any connection? If they're, if they're actually simultaneous, how would they meet? And so that really doesn't make much sense either. And then if, if, if it, that is awareness, arises after the object of cognition, so independence upon it, there's a lapse there, cause and effect, then, then from what would cognition arise? Once again, what he's doing here is, is, is exactly in, along the same lines of inquiry that the Buddha set forth in his Mahasattapatthana Sutta, the great discourse on the four applications of mindfulness, examining closely the factors of origination. But rather than looking at it simply in terms of impermanence, dukkha, sukha, and then self or not self, he's going into, is it really there from its own side? And so if it's the case, now, of course, he's not challenging the whole of Buddhist psychology that says independence upon the object, then awareness of it arises, and that object acts as a cooperative condition. So he's not challenging that. But again, as usual, and you have to really kind of bear this in mind firmly, that what he's critiquing here is not whether, whether awareness, perception, and so forth arise independence upon the objects that they're apprehending, which Buddhism never, you know, by and large, it doesn't, doesn't question that, uh, but whether if we assume that everything is inherently existent, which is really pretty much everybody's working mode, the working hypothesis from almost all the world is, it's a real, real world out there, and I'm really here, and then how do we get together? So if you have an inherently existent object out there, and then independence upon that, some real inherently existent cognition arises, then what does it come from? What does it arise from? And so clearly it, it doesn't come, it doesn't really make any sense that it actually emerges from or arises from the object. There's no evidence that it actually arises from the brain. I would love to see such evidence. So many people believe it. I'd love to see their evidence. Um, but so far, none. And so then we can say, but no, I've studied, I've, I've studied this already. Right? You know. Where does it come from? OK, 
It arises, it arises from the preceding moment of cognition. If, you're, it's your, if it's your first moment of visual perception when you wake up. So let's imagine you're, you're in deep, dreamless sleep. All the sensory modes have gone dormant. And then while you're deep asleep, somebody comes and shakes you. Get up quickly. Uh, there's ice cream in the kitchen. Which you should know that you're dreaming. Right? But, if, but if you suddenly wake up out of a deep sleep, say, what, what? And then suddenly your visual awareness, of course, is flooded with visual imagery. Where does that first moment of visual perception, what's it arising from? Or is it magic that arises out of nothing whatsoever? Well, the Buddhist view is it's not arising from neurons, from the brain, from anything physical, because physical phenomena really just frankly don't have that capacity. There's just nothing in the whole of physics and chemistry that suggests that mental events will arise from them. All kinds of physical processes. Mental, it's, it's magical chemistry and magical physics. You, you won't find any course on magical physics or chemistry in any university that I know of. You get the magic only when you're you know, in another field like psychology. And so in any case, not from there. So from what would it arise? Well, if you study Buddhist psychology, you say, I know, I know. It arises from the previous moment of mental cognition. But now bear in mind, he's not challenging that, right? And, th and this is kind of pretty much straight Buddhist psychology as well, but he's not challenging that. He's a very savvy scholar. But he's saying, consider. Consider that mental consciousness is inherently real. If that's the case, mental consciousness will continue to be mental consciousness. An inherently real atom will continue to be that same inherently real atom right through time. It won't turn into something else because then it would lose its identity. How would it lose its identity when it's inherently bearing its own identity? So, he has just demolished the very notion that an inherently real cognition or awareness arises at all. Right? It doesn't arise prior to its object, simultaneous with the object, or after its object. It doesn't arise from anything, so therefore awareness, in terms of true origination, inherently existent origination, well, it never happens. So if it arises after the object of cognition, which Buddhist psychology says is conventionally true, from what would cognition arise? Inherently, from nothing. That is, it wouldn't arise at all. Conventionally, okay, preceding moment of cognition. The final line here, in this way, it, it is ascertained that no phenomenon comes into existence. That's really a very tight, high-density koan, because he's not packing it up with any reasoning at all. He just says, in this way, it is ascertained. It sounds like more like, if you're following this line of inquiry, this is what you will discover. So either follow the line of inquiry or don't, but if you do, this is what you'll discover. If you don't, well, that's your problem, right? But he's not packing it up with any kind of reasoning at this point. But the reasoning is there. It is ascertained that no phenomenon comes into existence. Back to that triad again, the object, the transfer of information, or the flow of appearances, and that which is aware of the appearances. If there is no inherently existent subject or awareness, consciousness, mind, then there's nothing to receive any inherently existent flow of information or appearances, and then there would be Again, no inherently existent object out there. So the problem of causality, this is what he's getting at all along here, is that as long as one is reifying anything, as soon as you refine anything, yourself, mind, atoms, space, time, consciousness, anything, as soon as you reify it, assume it has its own inherent nature, then you've isolated it, isolated it from, conceptually, in your mind, in your delusional mind, you've isolated it from any kind of fabric or network of causality. You've had it 
kind of implode in upon itself like an, like an ontological sow bug. A sow bug is a little, little bug that creeps along, and then you, if you bump it, it rolls into a ball. It was a little bug, and now it's just a, a bug ball. And it looks like it's totally sealed on the outside. So all of reality would be consisting of little sow bugs that have rolled into a ball. And they would all be holding their own inherent existence, but they couldn't causally interact with anything, which is exactly what the sow bug would like to do, not causally act with anything, especially that which wants to eat it. Okay? So it's the reification is kind of the sow bug approach to reality. And so in terms of the whole mind-body problem, it continues to be a problem. It's been a problem for centuries in Western philosophy. It's a problem now. And so many kind of attempts to solve it so that people can stop thinking about it, I think, because it's so, it's so irritating. So one group, they're called eliminative materialists. They say, don't worry, subjective experience, the mind, it's an illusion. So therefore, no problem. All that really exists, inherently exists, is the mind. So there's one way. If you don't understand something, just say it doesn't exist. I like that. I like that. It makes you feel very relaxed. Don't understand something? Say it's an illusion. It's not really there. Ah, problem. That was easy. Any other problems you'd like me to solve? <laughs> Cancer, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's. It's just an illusion. It doesn't really exist. So there's one approach. Another approach is, if you don't understand it, equate it to something you do understand, or at least you understand better. So just say it's the mind, a brain. You understand, you actually have techniques for studying the brain and getting consensual knowledge about the brain. That's a real science, brain science, outstanding science. That they understand. They don't understand the mind. So if you want to solve the mind-body problem, just take that which you don't understand and just say, ah, oh, doggone it, it's the same as what we do understand. Let's get to work and give us more money to study what we like to study. So that's, that's another cheap solution. But the problem lies in reifying anything at all. If you reify the brain, which is absolutely standard modality in all of, I think, all of neuroscience, there may be an exception here and there, but that is an inherently exi existent, really there, incredibly complex configurations of neurons, glial cells, synapses, dendrites, and so forth, inherently really there waiting to be explored, then the notion that this chunk of mass energy would somehow causally interact with some inherently real consciousness, which is absolutely immaterial, absolutely non-physical, just calls for magical thinking, because it's just hard to imagine how that could possibly occur. Right? And so this is the conundrum that Descartes set up for us. He reified the mind and he reified the body, and then he said, oh, gee, how do they interact? And he made up, frankly, a cockamamie story about the soul coming in by way of the pineal gland and so forth, complete conjecture with no empirical evidence whatsoever. And I think hardly ever, anybody's ever taken it seriously since then, at least anybody who takes empirical facts seriously. But the problem is not Descartes. The problem is not the eliminative materialist. The problem is not the the materialists that just want to say, okay, it's just brain, or the dualists, it's, the problem is reification. As soon as you reify anything, causality becomes horrendously difficult. I think, frankly, insolubly difficult. But if you cease reification, then you can see, all right, this means there is no inherent difference, intrinsically existent difference, between mind and matter. You don't have inherently existent matter or inherently existent mind, one with physical properties, the other not, so therefore you don't have them at all, then, then causality on a conventional level, which we know to be true, you know, nobody can doubt causality. You know, not if you keep your eyes open and just watch, hey, there's something that makes sense here. If it's on a conventional level, it can't be doubted, and then you can say, aha, maybe that's all there is to it. 
the causality, the flow of events, how they interact with each other, is all taking place on a conventional level, but with nothing there being inherently existent or reified. So a final note on that, and then I want to go into the little treat, is if we go back to, to Sartrantika, you remember that about a month ago? Sartrantika is saying there are things that really exist, and that means they're inherently there, they're absolutely there, and those are the things you directly perceive. And of course, it's not just material phenomena. That's ridiculous. Mental phenomena, of course, anybody who's not brainwashed in materialism knows that mental phenomena have causal efficacy. You, all you have to do is look. I mean, look for five seconds, and it gets pretty obvious. Uh, but the Sartrantica says here, all right, real phenomena, physical, mental, and then other types that are neither physical nor mental, they all have causal efficacy. They're inherently there. They, are, they lend themselves to direct measurement or observation, that is, they're perceptible. But then there's this whole class of like the ownership of this pair of glasses. And that's not perceptible. It's not real. It has no causal efficacy because it's just because we agree. Again, I could say, Miles, you want to me? say, sure. And then no, they no longer believe uh, they belong to me. So something merely conceptually designated, according to Satrantika, has no causal efficacy at all. Why? Because it's not really there. It's just something we agree on. It's that. It's that. Light. You want it? Sure, why not? Okay, then they're yours. Okay, but we see nothing really happened, except for the ownership shifted just because we say so. It's purely convention. So the Sartrantica says there can't possibly be any causal interaction between something that's real and something that's merely conceptually imputed or designated, agreed upon conventionally. Because how would that? You know, the fact that this is, is mine, the ownership of this pair of glasses, and the pair of glasses, or the computer, the glasses and computer, sure, they can causally interact like that, but the ownership of these two, they're going to ca causally interact with anything? kind of doesn't make any sense, does it? That's a good metaphysical realist stance, that anything that's conceptually designated, it's just a way of speaking, and you, kind of, you, should, you should do some dismissive gesture with your hands. It's like just a way of speaking like that, like that. But there's nothing there, nothing that has any causal efficacy that could transform into an effect as a substantial cause, that can contribute to, really contribute to, the real emergence of something else. Mere convention, forget about it. Just words. Right? And the Madhyamaka turns that right on its head. Right on its head. The only way that causality can possibly occur is if none of the things involved in a causal interaction are inherently real. If anything's inherently real, it's sealed off from any kind of causal interrelationships. So it's only because things are conceptually designated that they can have causal efficacy. So, <coughs> this is the king of reasoning. Pratyutasamapada, according to Nagarjuna, the royal path to realizing emptiness is to just follow straight down that track of attending, and it's, in a way it's very scientific, in the sense that scientists since Galileo and certainly before have been so carefully observing phenomena, taking them seriously, observing the nature of phenomena, and then, of course, they're looking for patterns, regularities, which we call laws of nature, and these tend to be causal, okay? Talk causal. So science is very much about causality within the physical world and then struggling to find, you know, to understand, but not struggling too hard right now because they don't have a handle on how to pursue it, but the causality between mind and brain, the placebo effect, how does it work? I think there's not much research there because I don't think they have a clue, how do you proceed? What exactly should we study? to understand how the placebo, it looks like magic. 
So they said, well, never mind. Let's exclude it from all the trials, and then we can find out what's really working, and that's the chemicals. Um, so but the scientific way is really looking closely at the phenomena with as much sophistication as possible, examining very closely the causal interrelationships among them. And then, lo and behold, by the most mature of all the sciences, physics, within physics, the most cutting-edge physics, which is in quantum mechanics and quantum cosmology, then coming there by way of studying phenomena and by way of studying pratitya sambutpada in the natural world, then coming to the conclusion that without the observer-participant, time is frozen and there's no change which means there's no causality. Introduce the observer-participant who says now, and now relative to now, there's past and future, and then let the games begin. And then evolution of the universe rolls, and now you're talking about causality. But you've got to have the observer-participant. It's really, really quite amazing. So that's a brief introduction. We will tomorrow go on to the Shikshasamachaya, his other great text, and the close application of mindfulness to the mind in that text. Um, but right now, what I'd like to do is go something somewhere else entirely. So I'm going to surprise you. A little bit of history first, and, but I think I've mentioned it, so I'll be very, very concise. But it was just about exactly 40 years ago when I was studying in the library with this wonderful Lama, Geshe Lama Taiki, having gone through the entire Lamrim, beautiful presentation. And then he went through all the, the entire Bodhisattvatara, guided the Bodhisattva way of life, did a marvelous job. Of course, he's a fantastic lama. Then he went on to the Abhisamalankara, one of the five works of Maitreya, a, an ornament for clear realization, uh, delivered by Asanga. So very much as Dujum Lingba delivered a lot of mind treasures on Dzogchen, well, so did Asanga deliver these five treatises of Maitreya, the five works of Maitreya. And this Mundogen, or Abhisamalankara, was one of them. And a very, an absolutely central and all-abiding theme throughout the whole text is laying out systematically, step-by-step, step, the entire path to enlightenment. That is, what are the stages of spiritual evolution that you transform, that you, you go through as you achieve, let's say, focusing on Mahayana, the Mahayana path of accumulation, and then preparation, and the path, path of meditation, the path of, path of seeing, path of meditation, and then the path of no more training. And you come to the culmination of that fifth path, and that's Buddhahood. So this is the, the most detailed, systematic, precise exposition. And then the commentaries and sub-commentaries go on for thousands and thousands of pages. Um, so Gishingo and Taiki introduced us to this text. And so that was my first introduction to the five paths, the ten bumis, the ten Arya Bodhisattva grounds. Uh, but it was when he described just the first one, the, path, the Mahayana path of accumulation, and then within the Mahayana path of accumulation, the first of the five, and they're sequential, of course, then it breaks down to small, medium, and great. So then you go to the small stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation. <clears throat> and when do you achieve this? When, having cultivated the four measurables, cultivated bodhicitta, when your bodhicitta, this, this mind of a bodhisattva, when it arises spontaneously, effortlessly, triggered by anything, but when it's uncontrived, effortless, then you're a bodhisattva. And when you become a bodhisattva, that's when you step over the threshold and you are, you are now, you have just entered the great highway, Lamboche, the great highway to enlightenment. Right? Stage one, it's called earth-like bodhicitta because it's the foundation for all the developments and refinement and, and maturation of bodhicitta from that point on. And so as soon as I heard about that, 
And my staff was really enamored by that. I was quite thrilled, inspired. I thought, whoa, there it is. There's the target. That's, that's, the, on that's, that's the entrance to the freeway right there, that small state. I just want to focus there. So he introduced, he introduced us to that. And I got very inspired. I went, okay, spontaneous bodhicitta. Okay, good, good, good. And oh, by the way, you need chamata. Okay, whatever. And so shortly after that, by you know, just about that time, I was fluent enough in Tibetan that with the encouragement of His Holiness, who was at that time my lama, primary lama, uh, he encouraged me to enter the Buddhist school dialectics. So I, I was no longer going to the library. So about the time that Patrice showed up, then I was already vanished uh, into uh, this freshly established monastery with just 30 monks. Um, and after studying all the basics of logic, Sautrantika view, Buddhist psychology, laying a foundation, kind of getting, and learning how to debate. That took about 14 months of very intense study, very intense training. Five hours a day of meditation, memorizing hundreds of pages of material. So we all did it. And then once we'd finished all that, and I finished all that, then the very next day, after I finished all that preliminary training, the very next day, then we were to begin six years of study, single-pointedly six years of study on the Abhisamalangara with his commentaries, sub-commentaries, sub-sub-commentaries, and debating five hours a day on all of these five stages and ten bhumis. And, but I'm still, I'm still looking at small stage of, pa ma <laughs> of mahapathic accumulation. And they're talking about this. So what I felt like, I went off and did a Goenka course just before the six years was to begin. And there I was meditating, observing the sheer chaos, the garbage dump, and the cesspool of my mind for 11 hours a day, for 10 days, just before I'm about to start studying the five paths and the 10 bhumis. When I came out of that 10 days, before the 10 days was over, I had already asked for a personal audience with His Holiness, saying, there's no way I can study those five paths and 10 bhumis, not when I've got a trash, you know, a trash yard as my own mind. It's, it's, and it's impossible, and I can't do it. I didn't even ask him. I just, I can't do it. Because I've got this mess to deal with. And I would like to just focus on the small stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation. And the rest of it, I'll get to it later. You know. But I really felt, here's the closest analogy I can come. Imagine you're, you know, a beggar, a real beggar. Maybe you're a prince in disguise. That's for you to find out. But as far as you know, you're a real beggar. And you're there on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. You know, they, they can't tell you you can't walk on the sidewalk. Even if you're a beggar, I don't think they can tell you. You're too poor to walk here. I don't think they can say that. So even as a beggar, you know, homeless person, you can still walk down the sidewalk on one of the richest streets in the world and some of the fanciest restaurants in the world, and you can look at the menu. Even if you're a beggar, they can't say, nope, your eyes cannot touch this menu. They, you, you can. So imagine there you are as a beggar. You don't have five cents in your pocket. And you see, ah, there's the hors d'oeuvres. $50 for an hors d'oeuvre. Wow, that must taste good. And there's the main course. Oh, $300 for the main course. And those are the side dishes, $100 a piece. The dessert itself is $30. Wow. How about some drinks? Ooh, wow. Alcoholic drinks can be much more expensive than the entire meal. And so you're seeing that, you know, and the, some of them will be laid out in like five courses, ten courses. And you see, I could easily spend $1,000 here for one meal. And I don't have five cents. Why don't I study the menu for six years? <laughs> and meanwhile, of course, I'm going to starve to death. But man, will I know that menu. 
And if anybody stops by, they can say, do you know the menu? Have you, have you studied the menu of this restaurant? And I say, you betcha. I can tell you, would you like to spend six years with me? I'll tell you about the menu. It's a fantastic menu, believe me. And I've smelled some of the food because the smell came free. And it really smells good. So if you'd like to starve to death with me, sure, six years, three months, whatever you like, I can tell you about all of the five main courses and then the ten desserts. You know. And I just thought, no, can't do it. I can't do it. So I, I spoke with holiness and said, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I've got to. What I want to do is just focus on the foundation and try to find the way to the, to the path. You know. And he said, good. <laughs> good. Very good. Go do it. And one of his, Senshap uh, was Kujulati Rinpoche, wonderful scholar, his consultant, doctrinal, and all that. He said, Kujulati Rinpoche, he'll help you. So, Go, good. So that's what I did. You know, just went up and like that. And so this has been a, a source of inspiration for me ever since, that the Earthlight Bodhicitta, there you've, you've gotten actually onto the freeway. And then if you move beyond that, now the, the corresponding wisdom practice on that initial stage of Mahayanapathic accumulation is any guesses. Jochen. Oh, I thought you'd know. Who, kn- who knows? Birgit. What is the, the wisdom practice on the small stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation? You have bodhicitta, of course, and, the, and it's earth-like bodhicitta, but what's the corresponding wisdom practice? Wisdom practice. But more specifically, it's the four applications of mindfulness. Yeah. Out of the 37 wings, the 37 wings to enlightenment, 37 facets to enlightenment, the first four applications of mindfulness right there on the small stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation. So that's what I told this holiness that I wanted to study and practice. I just want to focus on that. He said, good, very good. There's the, there's the Kangur. There's the Buddha, collecting the Buddha's teachings. You can go into the main temple and they let me take down these great big volumes. I think I was maybe the only one. And started chowing down. And so... But it's the four applications of mindfulness. What is it that enables you to turn this earth-like bodhicitta into gold-like bodhicitta? Because if you achieve only the small stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation, you could conceivably lose it and then fall off the path and then wander elsewhere. It could happen. Uh, by, by just encountering some atrocity, something that would so break your heart, shatter your spirit, demoralize you, that you just say, essentially, being, it's just too degenerate. I, I can't deal with this. And I'm just going to go off and achieve my own liberation. Good luck, everybody. But, you know, that's just, that's just one task I can't take on. Because, you know, no can do. And then just follow your own path. It could happen. But if you seal, if you reinforce, there's a nice word, if you reinforce that initial bodhicitta, that earth-like bodhicitta, with the four applications of mindfulness, then that not only does your insight grow, of course, but your compassion, your bodhicitta grows, and it turns into gold-like bodhicitta on the medium stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation. When it's gold-like bodhicitta, that means it doesn't matter what happens. Nothing will ever happen that will cause you to lose your bodhicitta. In other words, from now until you're a Buddha, you will be a bodhisattva every single lifetime. You'll always be on the path. So whether it's three countless eons, seven countless eons, one lifetime, ten, whatever, you're going to be a bodhisattva until you're a Buddha. There'll be no deviations. You'll be on the path 
until you're a Buddha. That really, I must say, that really struck home to me. So that's old history for me. That goes back 40 years. 20 years ago, Yatra Rinpoche taught a text by Kamachame Rinpoche, the union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. And as I translated it, translated his oral commentary, we broke this into two volumes. The first one is Spacious Path of Freedom, the second one called Naked Awareness, but both are about the union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. When we come right towards the end of the second volume, which is so culmination of the entire volume, there are a couple of chapters just before the concluding chapter, which are all about the five paths and the ten bhumis from a Mahamudra perspective. How do you move along those practicing Mahamudra? And there's a very detailed account there, so anybody who has the book, you can read it at your leisure. But, what, what, but the basic structure of the path of Mahamudra is just four yogas, Four yogas. Sechik Binanjor, so the yoga of single-pointedness, that's the first one. And then Tudelki Nanjor, the, the yoga of freedom from conceptual elaboration. And then Karasa Rochik, Rochike Nanjor, the yoga of one taste. And finally, Gomeki Nanjor, the yoga of no meditation. And when you finish that, then you're a Buddha. So the whole path, of the five past ten bhumis, are all now synthesized just into four categories, just those four yogas. So the first one is the yoga of single-pointedness. I always focus, just by my predilection, the other ones sound really good, I'm sure. What's, what, how, do you get, how do you get a table in that restaurant? How do you get a table and have enough money in your pocket that you can at least order a basket of bread? Maybe an hors d'oeuvre. But how do you get a table you know, and not always be just standing outside the door picking up the fragrances and getting hungrier and hungrier? And so among these four yogas, the yoga of single-pointedness that covers Mahayana path of accumulation and preparation. The yoga of freedom from conceptual elaboration, path of seeing. The yoga of one taste, most of the path of, prepar- of meditation, the yoga of no meditation, the culminating bhumis, Arya Bodhisattva bhumis, and then Buddhahood itself. So that's how they map out. But again, I, so I hear that. Sounds cool. It's kind of nice. It's a map upon a map. But now let's just go back to the beginning again. Because here we are. This is Rodeo Drive. Here's the restaurant. How can we get in and at least order some bread? You know, get, get in the door. And so... Gyatra Rinpoche re-inspired me all over again. It was, like my, it was really my second wind. Um, after 20 years, primarily of Golupa, Theravada, Samsakya, then the last 20 years, primarily Dzogchen, but with Gyatra Rinpoche, a big dose of the, of the Mahamud tradition from, the, from Kama Chakmet, from the Kagyut tradition. So I wanted to share this with you to provide context, and I think you'll find it dovetails really with everything we're doing here, but very explicitly with close application of mindfulness to the mind. So I'm going to try to be concise here, uh, if you're even one-tenth as inspired by this as I am, the time will be well spent. So Kamachame Rinpoche is the author of the text, and he, write, he writes up to single point, up until single-pointedness. And so, and so, so as long as you're doing practices of all kinds, whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter what you're doing, any kind of practice that you're doing, of any sort, up until, but you've not yet achieved the yoga of single-pointedness, which means, okay, how do you get in the door? The small stage, 
the little stage, up until if you've not achieved that yet, up until single-pointedness, primordial consciousness that realizes the path has not arisen. In other words, you're not on the path. So that is not genuine meditative equipoise. You do not have meditative equipoise until you've reached that yoga of single-pointedness. Now recall, the Buddha said, the mind that rests in meditative equipoise comes to know reality as it is. Well, you don't. If you haven't yet achieved the single-pointed, the yoga of single-pointedness, you've not achieved that yet, and you're not on any path. You may be practicing for 40 years. You're still not on any path. You've just done a whole bunch of practice. This, that, the other thing, all very well, all virtuous, definitely a whole bunch of good imprints, but you're still not on a path, and you have not achieved meditative equipoise. Thus, as subsequent appearances, that is, so in meditation, you've not yet achieved meditative equipoise, and then we have the post-meditative state. Thus, as subsequent appearances do not arise as illusions, that is, when you come out of meditation, you're not having bona fide illusory-like samadhi between sessions, there is no genuine post-meditative state. In other words, without having achieved single-pointedness, you don't have meditative equipoise in meditation, and you don't have authentic post-meditative experience either. You're neither here nor there. You're really nowhere at all. You're wandering around samsara with a whole bunch of good dharmic, karmic, dharmic imprints. So Gyatrimache, in his oral commentary, he comments here. This is where my ears perk up. The first stage, small stage, the first stage of single-pointedness occurs with the accomplishment of any guesses. <laughs> Gee. Shamatha. The first stage of single-pointedness occurs with the accomplishment of shamatha. And I'm, I'm quoting. Otherwise, I would, be, I would never want to, how do you say, deform his own statements. This is his words. The first stage of single-pointedness occurs with the accomplishment of shamatha, wherein one single-pointedly attends to one's own awareness, which is primordially unceasing and luminous. Unceasing and luminous. In other words, the conventional nature of your own awareness. So it's shamatha without a sign. Sooner or later, you have to get there. If you're going to embark on these four yogas that are the Mahamudra, the Mahamudra route, then sooner or later, you will be coming to shamatha without a sign, awareness of awareness. Come by any means, Buddha image, mindfulness of breathing, whatever, but sooner or later, you have to come there. Otherwise, you've not achieved the first stage of single-pointedness. You've not achieved the path. Now, here I found especially interesting. This is from uh, Ranjum Dorje, and he's the third Karmapa, lived back in the 14th century, as I recall, in a text called the Tichen, or the Great Instructions. He comes back to this same point, just what Gautra Nubachi referred to. You, you gain access to that small stage with shamatha on the mind, an awareness itself. Now, Ranjum Dorje, one of the, again, the most formidable voices, great, greatest authorities in the whole Kagyu tradition, Oh, yeah, and he lived from 12, 1284 to 1339. He says, now I quote again, at the stage of small single-pointedness, that's the small stage, the first stage, there are four applications of mindfulness. I bet you've never heard what I'm about to read. I've never seen it anywhere else. We've looked at the four applications of mindfulness from the Pali Canon and Theravada. Then we've looked at it from Madhyamaka by way of Shantideva. Now we're returning to the four applications of mindfulness by way of Mahamudra. What's distinctive? Very cool, isn't it? It's very cool. So here's what he says. There are four applications of mindfulness. The application of mindfulness of non-compositeness, of non-compositeness, 
free of any thought of the body as being either clean or unclean. So you see, now, where's your vantage point? Where's your lighthouse? On what island is your lighthouse by which you're illuminating your body? Your lighthouse is resting in awareness of awareness. It's a substrate consciousness. And then you're turning the light of that pure luminous awareness illuminating your body, but it's a non-conceptual awareness. Right? So the very notion of clean and unclean, which is it? Full of filth and feces and organs and all that kind of stuff, all has its conventional reality, but not from your perspective. The very categories of clean and unclean do not arise. The very category of is the body composite or non-composite does not arise. You're viewing it from a deeper perspective just pure awareness. So there's the first one. So there's your close application of mindfulness of the body, which from this perspective, the category of composite, non-composite doesn't arise. The categories of clean and, and not clean don't arise. Quite interesting. Quite unique. I've not seen it anywhere else. Let's continue. How about feelings? The, clo- the application of mindfulness of taintless bliss without regarding feelings as being either suffering or joy. So you're just dwelling in this genuine flow of happiness, of well-being, of sukha, of priti, arising, but then without superimposing upon them any category of suffering or joy. In other words, you're not reifying feeling that arises. It's taintless bliss, free of the superimposition of reification, because you can assume that this is resting on madhyamaka. It's not just leaping madhyamaka and coming from the Pali Canon to this. This is just as the, the Shantideva is rising independent upon, built upon the teachings in the Pali Canon. Likewise here, moving into Mahamudra, this is resting upon the Madhyamaka, the middle way view that Shantideva describes. Because all of these now are imbued with some understanding, some insight, some taste of emptiness, gained by way of this close application of mindfulness, exactly as Shantideva was describing. So it's an utterly smooth continuum here. We move to the third, the application of mindfulness of the mind, free of conceptual elaborations, concerning the mind being either permanent or impermanent. So those categories, too, are not being superimposed upon your experience of your own mind. And then finally, the application of mindfulness of phenomena, cutting off superimpositions concerning the reality of nirvana, without thinking of phenomena as either having or not having an identity, an identity of their own. Even that is left out. In other words, it's a non-conceptual view which is not slipping into any of these conceptual constructs, but viewing them from outside those boxes. So that's for starters. If you have the patience for it, let's read a little bit more. So, sing, so I mentioned this single, so single-pointedness in these phases of small, medium, and great, these, are, these are comprise the path of accumulation and preparation. Then the freedom from conceptual elaboration comprises the path of seeing. Gautamacca comments here in his oral commentary, the defining characteristic of the first yoga, single-pointedness, is recognizing the nature of your own mind. Further, you realize that appearances are none other than the nature of your own mind. And that nature is space-like emptiness. So this is the wisdom characteristic that's moving right through this, the path of accumulation, the path of preparation, all on this, this straight track of Mahamudra. 
you go back to this, the primary words of the great instructions, I think this is also probably by Ranjan Dorje. Abide in the reality of single-pointed, indivisible shamatha and vipassana. So you enter into it with shamatha, but then your first task on the wisdom side is start developing vipassana. And Birgit was right. It is emptiness all the way through. But now, by this close application of mindfulness, ala shantideva, but now moving into the Mahamudra mode, that union of shamatha vipassana attending to the body, feelings, met, uh, uh, mind, and phenomena, and the union of these two, indivisible shamatha vipassana, the meaning is that single-pointedness entails abiding in the space-like reality of emptiness and luminosity. Emptiness and luminosity. This persists all the way through. It's that non-duality of emptiness and luminosity. Emptiness and appearances. At that time, you realize the essential nature of meditation as space-like emptiness and luminosity. But the vipassana of certain knowledge has not arisen from that space-like emptiness and luminosity. In other words, you've gained some glimmering, some insight, but it's not yet got a lock. It's not this certain knowledge. Thus, with single-pointedness, because you don't have that full, non-conceptual, unmediated realization, you pointlessly wander about in darkness relative to the later states. At that time, your subsequent post-meditative consciousness reifies phenomena by grasping onto them as ordinary and real. So when you're in meditation, luminosity and emptiness, emptiness and luminosity, but then you come back and say, oh, hi, hi Miles. Hi, Tracy, what's up? And you slip right back. It's like what uh, so many of you are dreading. Going back to the mundane world where everybody around, around you reifies everything and they think they're sane. How can you handle it? You know, when you step out of this abode, where and then everything everything seems reified. You're back to oh, what they call the real world, which of course is the delusional world, because that's where everybody reifies everything. Okay, but here it's something similar. When you're off the cushion, the old habits come surging in again. You get on the cushion, you have these wonderful phases of sanity, but you get off the cushion, and then the old delusions come in again. Hence, even though you, you ascertain empty luminous, luminosity during meditative equipoise, your subsequent consciousness in between sessions becomes confused concerning ordinary things. So there is, no, there is the stain of grasping onto them as real, and the stains of karma are not purified. So in between sessions, if you're not mindful, you disengage from meditation. So all of this actually, even though this is a bit further than where we are right now, very relevant to leaving this retreat. Very relevant. You know, microcosm, macrocosm, all over the place. If you're not mindful, mindful, you disengage from meditation, which brings about separation. And even if, 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 even if you are mindful, the essential nature is not seen during the post-meditative state, so there's no attainment. You keep on flipping in and out. It's almost like a person who's insane and then has moments of sanity and then insane again, so you haven't stabilized yet. You have not dispensed with superimpositions upon experience, and you still have the sense of an object, an agent of meditation. So this is a time of meditation in which the ultimate reality of the mind is reified. The form aggregate and the five avenues of consciousness are purified. They're cognized as naturally empty, ungrounded in, any, in an essential nature. Since you are inevitably subject to grasping, your experiential realizations are stained. By that, the old propensities for reification. In terms of the appearances to your limpid awareness, you precisely discern subtle and gross causality. But because this is grasped as being real, causality is reified. When you are undistracted, you're in meditative equipoise. And when you are distracted, you're in the post-meditative state. 
At this time, you disengage from characteristics and you chiefly cultivate shamatha in a state that is free of the intellect. You know your own essential nature of empty luminosity. It's a little bit more. So there's, there's the entry stage. Quite clear, I think. Where you're going just, with, just in a seamless fashion, slipping right into the substrate consciousness, realizing the cognizance, the luminosity of your own awareness, and then plunging right on through to the emptiness of your own awareness, wherein the luminosity is still present. Because your awareness of emptiness is luminous, and so you're simultaneously experiencing the luminosity of your own awareness and the emptiness of your own awareness. Simultaneously, the two. Let's just take a sneak preview. I will not be going into the three higher, higher yogas. That's, again, reading the menu too far. But in the medium stage of single-pointedness, and I think this is interesting. I mean, it's all interesting. You occasionally enter into samadhi even when you're not meditating. So now you see that divide between meditative state and post-meditate starting to get blurry. The meditative state is kind of melding over into the post-meditative. So you occasionally enter into samadhi even when you're not meditating, and stability comes when you are meditating. In the limpidity of the, tra- of the training and the samadhi of bliss, clarity, and non-conceptuality, equality of the substrate. Here's so interesting. In the limpidity, which means transparent and luminous, in the limpidity of the training, in the samadhi of bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality, you can display numerous kinds of tainted extrasensory perception and paranormal abilities. This is the medium stage, path of accumulation. Tainted, why? Because there's still some element of reification going on. But extrasensory perception, paranormal abilities, are coming right in there on this medium stage where that, where's that gold-like bodhicitta. In that state, ideation or rumination arises less than before, and whatever, and of course that's between sessions, and whatever arises proceeds in its own limpidity, just a sheer display of luminosity. Afterwards, whenever you are mindfulness, mindful of spacious appearances, that are imbued with a sense of empty luminosity, at times this arises as meditation, and at times it rises more substantially. So again, you're wavering in and out. Empty luminosity, and then again, the old habit of reification comes in. And then it loosens up. Empty luminosity again. Dreams occur less frequently than before. At times you have such an experience, and at times you do not, and you become fascinated with this meditation. Shall I read a little bit more? I'm enjoying it. If you're not, then you can always settle your mind in its natural state. Don't mind me. I'm going to read more. The middling stage of single-pointedness in which the facsimile of empty luminosity is maintained with mindfulness. Facsimile in the sense this is not yet an unmediated direct realization of emptiness, but it's something similar. In this middling stage of single-pointedness, although there may be occasional distraction during which it is not maintained continually, it is called the warmth and pinnacle stages of the path of preparation. So this middling stage is equivalent to the first two of the four stages of path of preparation. Warmth, to and pinnacle, semel. Once the experience has become stable, if that empty luminosity is maintained with mindfulness, it will become constant, even if at times it is not intentionally maintained. So you just get that flow coming. This is also called warmth and the pinnacle. That is the teaching of Gutsangma, one of the great Mahamudra masters. So he's just locked onto the middling stage is these first, sta- first two stages of path of preparation. So the small stage of single-pointedness is 
small, medium, and great stage of Mahayana path of, accumula of accumulation. Right? You go to the middling stage, the great stage, then you're in the first and second, third and fourth stages of path of preparation. Just a little bit more. I'm, sl I'm slipping down now. Kama Shamit says, by cultivating that meditation for a long while, your mind will turn away from the eight mundane concerns. You'll be freed from outer and inner parasites. It's much better than antibiotics. And you'll be able to display paranormal abilities such as meditative manipulation and domination of the elements and so forth. So mind over matter, big time. When that happens, the qualities of single-pointedness have arisen. You've really nailed the first yoga. If the mind is not serviceable, if the essence and dross of meditation are not differentiated due to a lack of mental peace, and if you are incapable of bringing forth the common signs of warmth, that's the first stage of path of preparation, those qualities have not arisen. Final one in short. Kamashame again. The difference between single-pointedness and freedom con from conceptual elaboration, that's the one that corresponds to the path of seeing, the next yoga, is in the former... Rumination, ideation, does not arise. So thoughts, rumination, and so forth. In the former one, single-pointedness, path of accumulation and preparation, when thoughts arise, they do not arise as the dharmakaya. They do not display themselves. You do not see that these are actually nothing other than the effulgence, the play, the display. Creative expressions of rikpa. You don't see that. You see they're empty, but that's all you see. They're empty, okay, cool. But when you achieve, by way of this Mahamudra, this path, and this path right now is the same path as Dzogchen, they don't differentiate until much later on. This is texture phase. You've not yet realized Rikpa. You've realized emptiness, but thoughts appear simply as empty. But when you move into the Mahayana path, Mahayana path, let's say Mahamudra path of seeing, then you see not only the emptiness of all thoughts and so forth that arise, but you actually see them. You don't visualize them. You see them as simply displays of Rikpa, Dhammakaya. Well, from what perspective could you possibly see all appearances, thoughts and so forth, as displays of Rikpa? From what perspective could you see that? Rikpa. Yeah. So that's when you become a Vijadara. A vidyadara, a holder of vidya, a holder of rikpa. You are now a true, you are now an accomplished Mahamudra practitioner. Or if you're following Dzogchen, this is all the same as Dzogchen. Right now, it's all the same. There's no difference. Terminology, that's it. Nothing, no other difference than that. Right? And so that's when you become a vidyadara. There are four levels of being vidyadara. I won't go into those now. But there it is. So. So that's the entering of the path. The great path. How to get in the door. How to get a table at the great Mahayana restaurant. That's the path. And it goes from the small stage, the medium stage, the great stage. And then the on-ramp. If you've ever been in a big city, and I'm sure you all have, in Los Angeles, we have this incredibly complex maze of freeways all over because we have so many cars and 8 million people all jumbled in the same place. And so I've been there many times. I used to live near there. 
And it can be very frustrating at times <clears throat> when you're downtown and you see the freeway you want, you, you see the freeway, freeway you want to get on. And you see, yep, that's the direction I want. That's the way home. It's right there. There's the freeway. And it's about 50 feet above where you are. You see? I wish I were a helicopter. I wish, how do I get my car up there? And you drive, and it's still up there, and you drive, and it's still up there. And then you get a one-way street, and you go off in another direction. You know? so, oh, 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 I can't see it anymore. I can't see the path anymore. And then finally, you do a lot of one-way, and you finally get back. And oh, there's, oh, but it's still 50 feet above me. You know? You'd give anything when it's the end of the day, and you've been driving in Los Angeles traffic for hours. You'd give anything to give me, oh, Lord, bless me with an on-ramp. <laughs> My kingdom for an on-ramp. You know, please. It's just painful to see the freeway I want to be on and see those cars going, whoom, whoom, whoom. And I'm going, sitting behind a red light. And they're going, whoom, whoom, whoom. Oh. Where's the on-ramp? Please, somebody show me the on-ramp. Any guesses what the name of the on-ramp is? What, Miles? Shamat on-ramp. <laughs> if you don't have shamata, you don't have an on-ramp. The on-ramp is not the freeway. If you just get on the on-ramp, you know you're not on the freeway yet. It's called an on-ramp. Right? You could be ticketed right there, and you could be towed away. You're so close. Or you could just be so happy you know, in a lot of on-ramps in Los Angeles, they have a little light that goes black, uh, uh, red, red, green, red, green. And you can't get onto the freeway until it gives you green, right? But if there's really heavy traffic, then you might be stuck with red for a while, right? And then you might fall asleep. In which case, all you've gotten is the on-ramp. And if you die there, you know, one, one of the many casualties on the on-ramp, then you never make it onto the freeway. You got that close, but if you didn't have that final surge to actually get into the flow of traffic on the freeway, then you're just on the on-ramp, which means really it didn't matter that you, got on the ramp, got, or you did get on the on-ramp or you didn't. It didn't matter because all you did was the on-ramp, but you didn't get onto the freeway, and that was the whole point of the on-ramp. You might just fight, love the flowers next to the on-ramp. You might, you know, all kinds of things. So there it is. It's the same theme. Shamat is the on-ramp. It's that which makes the mind so serviceable that you can transform the contrived, the effortful, developed bodhicitta in something that just flows spontaneously, effortlessly. And then with that shamatha, especially the shamatha, right on the nature of awareness, then you're just perfectly primed to apply that right into the four applications of mindfulness, thereby sealing your bodhicitta, getting irreversible. And then it's, you get into the fast lane. Then you're in the fast lane. So that's that. Is it cool? Good. Let's meditate. Let's, let's try to find that on-ramp.
So lay your mind down to rest. The mind that is so energetic, turbulent, active, restless. Lay it down to rest in this non-conceptual space of your body. Let your awareness come to the ground. Settle your body relaxed, still, and vigilant. Utterly surrender all control over the breath. Simply observe the body breathing. Settle your mind in the immediacy of the present moment. Free of grasping, let your awareness be still. as if you were stretching before setting out on a marathon run, warming up. But spend just a couple of minutes releasing your awareness into space with no object, 
utter sense of relaxation, of letting go. With your eyes open, but your gaze vacant. Utterly releasing all conceptualization, rumination as you breathe out. With no object. But as the breath effortlessly flows in, let your awareness withdraw from all appearances and converge in upon itself into a radiant, clear, unmediated experience of awareness itself, luminous and cognizant. As the breath flows out, release out into space with no object, as the breath flows in, concentrate, converting your awareness right in upon itself. The simple, unelaborated experience of being aware. As you arouse, invert, concentrate your awareness right in upon itself. This naturally serves to dispel all laxity. And as you utterly release, especially releasing any thoughts that may have arisen, releasing your awareness into space with no object, this is the natural remedy for excitation. So balance your awareness in this way.
while you may have some sense of the emptiness of your mind, this construct, this label that we superimpose upon a myriad of mental events, none of which are the mind, that we superimpose upon the space of the mind, which is an attribute of mind, but not the mind itself. You may have some sense, some intuition, perhaps even some experience of the emptiness of inherent nature of your mind. But what about awareness? That transparent, luminous, perpetual flow of cognizance. Doesn't that, that seem inherently real, absolutely real, independent of any conceptualization? Isn't this one thing you can count on that's really there? Closely apply mindfulness to awareness itself. So try to place awareness itself between the glass plates that you place under the lens of your microscope. Stabilize it, clearly illuminate it. This awareness of awareness. So that you sustain that flow of knowing of knowing, knowing of being aware with continuity and clarity. There's nothing to think about here. Just as if you were drinking a glass of cool, pure water. There's nothing to think about. Just taste it. And taste it continually. This flow of awareness, of awareness, 
know it immediately. Now shift into the Vipassana mode of inquiry with a simple question. This awareness that you've been attending to so closely, does it have attributes or is it devoid of attributes? What are its attributes? These are identified by way of shamatha. Attend closely. Is it static? Or is it arising in a series of staccato moments of awareness? Does it have the quality of knowing? Does it have the quality of luminosity, of clarity? Is it creative? With thoughts, memories, images emerging from it? Is your awareness sometimes still and sometimes in motion, sometimes relatively free of grasping, sometimes carried away by grasping? Is it restless or calm? Clear or dull?
agitated or still. If it is true that awareness takes on one or more of these qualities and has some of these qualities perhaps all the time, then examine very closely what is the nature of this awareness that has these many attributes. Can you find that awareness among the attributes, any one of them individually? among all of them collectively? Or can you identify awareness as something separate from all of them while awareness possesses all of them? See if you can identify awareness itself that has these multiple qualities. There is awareness, and there's everything else that is not awareness, which means there must be a distinction between awareness and not awareness. There must be boundaries. So examine closely. What are the boundaries of your awareness? Where does it, how far does it extend, and where does it stop? Where do you meet the border beyond which not awareness. The border between awareness and appearances that are illuminated by awareness. Where's the border? They're not the same. Where's the border?
if upon thoroughly looking for this real awareness that is inherently real, independent of all conceptual designation, if upon thoroughly looking for it right where it should be, if you cannot find it, rest in that knowing of the absence of awareness. The emptiness of awareness. Rest non-conceptually in that awareness of emptiness that by nature is luminous. The luminosity that by nature is empty.
as a footnote, I find it quite interesting that in this Mahamudra account of path of accumulation, and then specifically the small stage of this yoga of single-pointedness, that there is already this emergence of paranormal abilities and extrasensory perception, but with no reference to achieving the actual state of the first jhana, the second, third, fourth. There's no reference to it at all. It's just shamatha, and then specifically shamatha focused on the awareness. That's it. But there's no more elaboration about the jhanas. If you go back to Buddha Gosa, the path of purification, or Visuddhimagga, he's got a whole chapter. It's quite fascinating, actually. A whole chapter on how, just like a cookbook, like a chemistry textbook. It's so prosaic, so mundane. And that kind of makes it more appealing to me. There's nothing mystical or spooky or weird about it. That you, you achieve the first jhana, the second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. So you achieve all of those jhanas, maybe even into the samapatis. But then you achieve the jhanas multiple times with respect to, if you want really like to, like to develop a full spread of paranormal abilities and extrasensory perceptions, there's a whole chapter about it. And how you do that is by gaining mastery over the counterpart signs, or these archetypes, so to speak, from the form realm of earth, water, fire, air. That would be a good start. You can do the other ones as well, the primary colors. But you gain mastery of them, and you gain mastery of them in the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana, in multiple ones. So it's like really working out in the jhana gymnasium. You know, because you're working through all of these one by one, each of the four elements, for example, but in the four jhanas. So it sounds like a lot of work. It could be a lot of fun. People like to work out in the gym. You know, this is working out in the jhana gym. And then once you've mastered all of them with these multiple states of, of, of jhana, then you move, oh gosh, I, can't, I haven't memorized it, but it was kind of like, okay, you're ready. Now that you've learned the finger exercises, now more advanced finger exercises. Go into the first jhana in the earth element and to the fourth jhana in the fire element. Now come back to the third element in water and come back to the first in air. Ready? Okay, and now we're going to go, it's kind of da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You're really working, you're working out. And so you just gain this complete kind of suppleness of being able to lock onto these different nimittas, these archetypes of all the elements in different jhanas. So you just completely master them. And then once you've mastered them, then, then the fun begins. Because then, for example, you go into one of the jhanas, let's say the fourth jhana, let's say an earth element. You get a total lock on it, like you own it, right? So there you are, you've captured it. And then you come back, and, but, but like holding some like peripheral awareness, you hold that, but then you come back to the desire realm. Your, your phys- our physical environment, and you find, for example, a body of water, right? So you get your target. Like you're, it's like you're a bomber, and you're about to do a bombing run. So I'm going to bomb this lake. So it's, it's a lake, right? So you find your target in the desire realm with your eyes open. You're seeing something with your eyes. Okay, there's my target. Then you go right back up to the fourth jhana, right? And you get a lock once again. You reaffirm your lock on the, the form realm archetype of earth element, and then like dragging something across the screen with a mouse, you drag the nimitta, the counterpart sign, of the earth element, you drag it from there, and you superimpose it with the power of your samadhi on the lake. And then you walk on it. As long as you hold the samadhi. And if you're feeling generous, you say, Miles or Thomas, whoever happens to be your companion at the moment, we may doubt very much your abilities. 
Come and walk with me. And if Thomas gets into your flow, then Thomas can walk with you. You're holding the whole scene with your samadhi. As soon as you release the samadhi and let that, for, that, that archetype from the form realm, just like a yo-yo, flip right back to the form realm, then the water goes, whoop, and Thomas or Miles takes a bath. You know? But it sounds like a lot of work, really interesting work. And if you had 1,000 years to live, that might be a good way to spend 50 of them. It'd be fascinating, really. I mean, this is, if this is true, man, everything's different. But then you find no reference to any of that. Here it is. I mean, in these two chapters, it's two chapters in Naked Awareness, he lays out all the five paths and the ten bhumis, but just but puts on the grid of these four yogas. Uh, but there it is, right in the medium stage of Mayana path of accumulation, you're already getting these powers, they're running spontaneously. And no reference to jhana. So how are you getting it? Again, it's not by magic. Not, there's no magic. There's no woolly anything like that. No. Magic is simply a technology that is not sufficiently understood. Right? Or a miracle is simply an event that takes place that stems from a dimension of reality you haven't, you haven't yet comprehended. So what would be the best interpretation? What, how, would, how would you make sense of this? If we, if, and of course, you don't want to take it seriously. That's your business. I don't care. I take it seriously, as you can tell. If these paranormal abilities, extrasensory perception, if this is arising right out there, out of the medium stage of path accumulation, how are you getting that without doing all this enormous gymnastics of the higher jhanas and so forth? Well, it's, it's transparent. By the one thing you are developing, and that is the union of shamadeva vipassana right on the nature of the mind. By realizing that, by gaining insight into the empty, luminous nature of your own awareness, and by the power of that, the empty and luminous nature of all appearances. Oh, you're becoming quasi-lucid. Quasi-lucid. So the metaphor, my favorite, all-time favorite metaphor. Being non-lucid, so you're kind of lucid when you're meditating, but as soon as you get off the meditation cushion, you slip right back into non-lucidity within your, non-lu- within your dream. Meditative state, post-meditative state, Right? That's when you're right there at the beginning. But then you start getting into the flow of it. But imagine there you are in a non-lucid dream, but you're coming into such a deep insight. Number one, you have this sublimely stable, clear, luminous mind. But you're really probing into the very nature of awareness itself and seeing that your own awareness within the dream. Imagine practicing Vipassana within a dream, and that's definitely possible. Definitely possible. But imagine you're doing this in a non-lucid dream. And you're starting to not only rest in awareness of awareness, but probe into, Vipassana-wise, into the empty nature of your own awareness and gaining some realization. And holding that realization, to some extent, you come out of, in this post-meditative state, sustaining the awareness of the empty, luminous nature of your own awareness, and lo and behold, you're getting these strong glimmerings, some insight, experience, the taste of the empty and luminous nature of everything you're experiencing. And when you know that, when you know there's really nothing there from its own side, it's empty and luminous, then all you have to do is start conceptually designating differently. If you see there's nothing there that has already designated itself, labeled itself, demarcated itself, solidified all by itself, when you see there's nothing out there, what you're looking at as a, is a, a world of potentiality, an ocean of possibility, waiting to be designated, right? and simply appearing as empty appearances. Right? 
but nothing really there. So when you see, it's empty, it's luminous. And even without going into the jhanas and capturing the form realm and all of that, right from within that desire realm, within the dream, you could start then to shift the reality you're experiencing. As long as you're sustaining that flow of insight supported with shamatha, you could then start modifying that which you're seeing, mind over matter, all of the elements in the dream. You can start changing at will. And you're still not lucid. But as you continue on that trajectory and maintaining more and more of a continuity, a depth, a certainty of the emptiness of all phenomena within the dream, as you're moving into into the path of preparation, the warmth, the pinnacle, patience, and then supreme dharma, the four stages of Mahayana path of preparation, which now you're coming to the end of the first yoga, first out of four yogas. When you're coming to the culmination of that, and you really have realized sarva shunya, the emptiness of everything you're experiencing, yourself, your own awareness, your mind, other people, phenomena, appearance, everything. When you've now thoroughly, really you've comprehended, there is nothing here that exists from its own side, and you're maintaining a continuity of knowing that while you're in formal meditation and in between sessions. When you're there, then you are about as perfectly ripe for pointing out instructions as possible. Because in between sessions, you are seeing everything as dreamlike. That's just, just how it, it, it... It's no syllogism, it's no logic, it's no inference. You're seeing things. Everything is dreamlike. Yourself, your mind, and all the phenomena that you perceive. Right? So then how far away are you from some Dzogchen master coming to you and saying, you're very close, but you're wrong on only one point. This isn't dreamlike. This is a dream. And with that, the bottom falls out of your perspective. Because conventionally speaking, as an illusory being, you've still located yourself within the dream. Conventionally. You know it's convention. But that's where you are. That's your perspective. Still there. And then the master says, or you read a text, whatever it is, this is not like a dream. This is a dream. And then you break through your locus, where you feel you're located, you break through awareness itself, that conventional relative awareness. You break through that. And you break through to the ground from which the entire dreamscape appears. And now you're viewing that same dreamscape from the perspective of Rikpa. And then you see, aha, that's not dreamlike at all. That really is a dream. And now I see all the appearances and all the thoughts are really nothing other than displays creative expressions of Rikpa. And now you're a Vitidata. Oh yeah. Enjoy your dinner. <laughs>